It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. How to Play Our Way to a Better Democracy is the title of an article published just a few days ago in the New York Times by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. They said that if we want saner politics, we need to start building better foundations from the playground up. That includes how parents raise their kids and the way schools and colleges deal with a generation of students who are suffering from high levels of anxiety and depression. And we're going to be looking into this fascinating idea that maybe colleges are actually teaching students to think more like anxious, depressed people. It's a very provocative thesis. Okay, you may not agree with it, but uh, it's kind of fascinating. The Coddling of the American Mind, Jonathan Haidt. Kids need thousands of episodes of falling down, of being excluded, of being teased. They need thousands of episodes of this for their psychological immune system to develop. And beginning in the 90s, we've been depriving our kids of the experience they need. This is not just like, oh, those young kids today, they're not like us. No, they're actually depressed, anxious, and they're killing themselves in much higher numbers. So yeah, we need to do something. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, we've done a bunch of shows on free speech and the need for civil debate on college campuses and in politics and in our society at large. But this one, it's going to be a little bit different. Right. Now we're going to go a little deeper. We want to explore why it seems that political tribalism has gotten so intense. Why are young people turning against free speech? And why do so many claim that the ideas they disagree with aren't just wrong, but traumatizing, even violent? Why, 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 why? <laughs> We're going to get it some reminds, answers. Reminds me of Howard Kirk and Network. <laughs> Our guest is a thinker who has spent his career studying how people form their moral beliefs. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at New York University Stern School of Business. He's also the co-author of a new book, The Coddling of of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. It's worth noting that his co-author on this book is Greg Lukianoff, who leads the campus free speech group FIRE. We interviewed Greg way back in episode 16 of How Do We Fix It? We're conducting this interview in John Haidt's office at NYU. The script says, welcome to How Do We Fix It? But I guess we're in your office. Welcome to my office. (laughs) Let's figure out how to fix it. Your book makes a pretty fascinating claim. 
that a lot of political extremism and the tribalism that we see today is similar to certain types of mental illness. Explain. Um, the the whole idea of the book is this brilliant insight that Greg Lukianoff had, and I guess he might have talked about that in, in, in the earlier episode, but the one-sentence version of it is that Greg is prone to terrible depressions. He, he learned how to do CBT. Is CBT, is that cognitive? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Um, and uh, he learned to challenge, you know, uh, emotional reasoning, black and white thinking, discounting the positives, basically bad thinking that we do to make ourselves, well, it ends up making us unhappier. Um, and so Greg learned not to do that. And then around 2013, he started seeing strange things on campus. Now, he'd been working on campus for more than 10 years, but suddenly he was seeing students engaging in intense emotional reasoning and uh, black and white thinking and demonizing and all these sorts of thought distortions. And his idea was some of the things we're doing on campus nowadays are actually teaching students to think in ways that are going to make them more anxious and depressed. And when he told me the idea, I thought, my God, this is the most brilliant idea I've heard in many years. And I kind of suggested, uh, well, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, you know, help advise you on this, but I, I'd be actually willing to be a co-author if you want to take me on as a second author. And he said, yes, definitely. And you call this book a social science detective story. Yeah, because we're living through an extremely strange time. Now, you know, social scientists love to talk about like the 1930s and the 1960s as two times when there was kind of intellectual and political chaos. And it was hard to understand what was going on. And many people felt that the things were coming apart. Um, well, it's now clear that we're in another age like that. And it's not just in America. It's, it's happening in many Western democracies. So sometimes I'm scared out of my mind because I really do think that um, terrible things can happen and our country really could fall apart in the next 10 or 15 years. Other times, I'm just incredibly fascinated. I felt as though, uh, having been born in 1963, I kind of missed the party. You know, everything got boring by the time I was a young adult. And, and now suddenly, it's a really interesting time. So part of the point of the book and your project with Greg Lukianoff is to dig down and find out the psychological underpinnings that have led us to this spot where these students feel so traumatized, so emotionally invested in in, in protecting, being protected from ideas that they don't like to wear. Yeah, but I'm sorry. I, I want to push back a little bit because this isn't just about students. Uh, it's it's about the political nature of the country at large. I mean, right, it's also right. about yes. right-wing uh, groups having litmus tests for their opinions sure. as well. Right. Okay. Well, the mission is to dig down and figure out where do people go wrong in their thinking that they get to this spot. And yeah. you open the book with... A kind of a summation of a lot of the ideas that are developed, and you call them the three great untruths. Yeah. Can you so, summarize mm -hmm. those for us in a nutshell? Yeah. So the three terrible ideas that we see circulating on campus are, first, um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. So if you're exposed to a book that has something bad in it, you could be injured, you could be damaged, you could be traumatized. So we have to keep students safe from books. Um, if a speaker comes to campus who's hateful, you should not only not go see it, but that speaker must be kept off grounds because if that speaker were to come and you don't go to the talk, you could still be traumatized by it. And then the third idea is life is a battle between good people and evil people. And generally in, in, in our public lives at large, do we take ourselves too seriously? And is this trend exacerbated by, by social media and by what's happened in 
broadcast media with with talk radio on the right and then so it's not that students have turned against free speech the polling data doesn't show that they suddenly have turned against it rather there's a new set of ideas um, around student fragility and around diversity and inclusion and these can all be placed these can all be stated in a very positive way. I mean, it's great that students are more sensitive about excluding people on the basis of race or gender or sexual orientation. So there's a very positive aspect to this. But the, the, there was a change in dynamic that happened around 2015. So the question is, why, why did this happen? Why did it happen so quickly and in a way that left most of us on the faculty deeply puzzled? Almost everybody's on the left, on the faculty. Uh, it's not like a left-right thing. It's sort of within the left why are there suddenly these new ideas that the older left generally is opposed? The older left, the baby boom left, certainly believes heavily in free speech and open argument and debate. So why did this happen? And it turns out that there are at least six causal threads. The six are, one, the polarization cycle, and that's what you were getting at before. Uh, we've got graphs in the book showing how much left and right hate each other in this country. and it's, it's been going up and up steadily since the early 1990s. Causal thread number two is that rates of anxiety and depression have been skyrocketing, skyrocketing. This is an unbelievable catastrophe that most Americans don't, don't yet appreciate. Um, the rate is up for uh, teenage boys and girls, but it's up much more for girls. Teenage girls have been really decimated, devastated. Um, I mean, most are still doing fine, but the, but the, the, uh, um, the rate of uh, depression and anxiety is up enormously. The rate of suicide is up 80 or 90 percent, 80 or 90 percent since the early 2000s. Is that related in any way to, to the rise of social media or technology yes. as well? Yes. Yeah. We don't know for sure because it's, it's very new and it's very hard to establish causality. We can't do experiments. Greg and I believe that um, a big piece of that is social media, which has very different effects on teenage girls than it does on teenage boys. And the other big thing we think is the overprotection, that pretty much everybody over 40 was allowed out and had a chance to practice their independence. And sometime in the 1990s, we just freaked out. We thought that if you, if you ever take your eyes off your kid, she's going to be snatched. So we stopped giving kids the chance to practice independence until they're around 15, 16. We don't let them out. That's the other big reason, we think. Um, but the point is there's a lot more anxious and depressed people on campus, and they are much more easily triggered, as it were. So this is a real problem. We have to be compassionate about it. We have to be careful about But there really are a lot more sensitive people who are easily harmed on campus. Uh, the third thread we call paranoid parenting. It's related to what we were just talking about. We stopped letting the kids out, and we started telling kids, don't talk to strangers. You know, if, if you see somebody you don't Stranger know... Stranger danger. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's crazy. You know, when we, when we were kids, you know, we had to learn to ask directions. You need help from strangers. And now I've noticed, you know, my kids, they don't ever want to talk to strangers. They don't need to because they can get directions on their iPhone. You know, if you think that everyone else out there is a danger and then you go to college, it's different than if you think that people are not necessarily dangerous. The fourth thread is the decline of play. And so we have a whole chapter. This was the most fascinating one for me to write to read the research on play and how all mammals play and they practice all the moves they're going to use as adults, including conflict resolution and dealing with risk. And we've stopped our kids from being exposed to risk and conflicts. Not stopped, but we've cut it back 90%. And then reason number five is the bureaucracy of safetyism. In response to a lot of changes on campus, uh, universities are becoming much more corporate since the 1980s, uh, much more fearful of litigation. So they come up with all these bureaucratic solutions to problems to prevent them from escalating, but the solutions often cause problems themselves. And so all of these new advisory boards, bias response teams, ways you can report each other. If you go into the bathroom here in my office in NYU, I'll show you later. There's a sign in every bathroom telling students where they can report me or any other student who says something they find offensive. Don't solve it yourself. Go get an adult. 
Um, and then the last one is new ideas about social justice. It's one of the most important concepts on campus. Of course, everybody supports social justice if it means equal dignity, equal opportunity, that we shouldn't treat people differently based on their category. But in recent years, they've embraced an idea that if there are not equal outcomes, then there is racism or sexism. And that leads to no end of conflict, distrust, and hatred. You say that we've developed this new tendency to medicalize the way we look at speech. So if there's an idea we don't like, we don't just think, wow, that's a really terrible idea, but we become protective of ourselves or often of others. It's going to traumatize them. It's going to hurt them. And you hear this all the time that you're committing violence. And you often hear people say, like, you know, somebody speaking on campus means violence against the bodies of certain people when the ideas have nothing to do with their bodies. That's right. So there's two different things going on that are intersecting here. The first is the is the increasing comfort that young people have with uh, language of mental health. Many more of them are... Um, are, as, as I said, anxious and depressed. Many more of them are, are in counseling. Many more of them are taking uh, uh, antidepressants and other drugs. Um, so they're very comfortable speaking about mental illness, depression, anxiety, uh, trauma. Um, and in some ways, that's a good thing. But we talk about the ways that if your self-identity is that of a mentally ill person, even if you're not, that can loop back to actually cause you to become mentally ill. But that's intersecting with the broader political um, uh, escalation. And this is something we're getting increasingly interested in, the ways that we, we, there are multiple games we can be playing at any given time. So one game could be the mental health game where we try to make people healthy or happy. But a different game is the victory game where we do everything to achieve victory over our enemies. And a lot of that, thank God, um, the political conflicts in America are not really violent. There's very little actual physical violence. But we're very adept at using words to advance our rhetorical techniques. And so the idea that words are upsetting is only violence if it's perpetrated by your enemies against you. Um, Your side can say whatever hateful and even really quite aggressive, nasty stuff against the other side. That doesn't count. But your side has special dispensations that if someone says something hateful against your groups, that's violence. Now, that's, it's not really violence, but it's a rhetorical trick that students are using. And I think it leads to no end of trouble because if you can define someone's, you know, a professor gives a lecture and someone says, well, that's violence. Well, that kind of demands a response from the administration. They can't let violence go unpunished. You talk about safetyism. What is safetyism? Uh, well, so safety is a good thing, uh, but safetyism is the worship of safety. And so um, Americans got much more protective of their kids physically uh, in the 80s and 90s. Now, in some ways, of course, this is a good thing. We really did an amazing job of cutting the child death rate. You know, when, uh, you know, when I was born in 1963, we were exposed to all kinds of toxins and leaded gas and dangerous playgrounds. And so, you know, things are much safer, uh, and that's good. But, but another thing that happened that intersects with that is we have declining family size, and this happens all over the world. When family size shrinks, parents are really, really protective of that one kid that they have. And so we raise our kids, and I do the same thing, saying safety first. Safety trumps everything else. Well, if that's the way kids are raised, and then they're able to define the speech of someone they don't like as dangerous or violent, well, that trumps everything else. We have to stop it. Safety first. So safetyism is this attitude that that in an environment which is physically incredibly safe, you still are are looking for threats and dangers and treating them as though they are physically dangerous. Um, And this, we believe, is really, really bad for young people's development. We want young people to feel that the world is their oyster. Go get them. You can overcome anything, even if you start off with some obstacles. Overcome them. 
But safetyism teaches kids, you're fragile, the world is out to get you, there's all these obstacles, you can't succeed, people like you can't succeed. Boy, is that disempowering. People are being taught to think that their internal reaction to something, their feelings, define the reality. And you, you cite this famous paper from a Columbia professor defining microaggressions. And in the paper, he argues that it's your feeling that you might have been treated some kind of aggression, not the other person's intent. Yeah, that's right. That's one of the mo- that's one of the real Rubicons or one of the real bright lines that we've crossed. When we stop focusing our moral judgment on intent, what did a person mean or intend, and we focus instead on the impact. And what I learned in studying political psychology is that you can't understand anything complicated or interesting unless you look at it from multiple sides. But let's take the case of microaggressions. There's something good or true or important about the concept, and that is that let's say if you're a black student in a very progressive, tolerant, anti-racist environment, even still, people are going to say things over and over. They think they're being funny. They think they're being helpful. And over time, it gets really annoying. Or, you know, black students say, like, people touch my hair like that. You know, that's like really rude. And we should be telling people, even if you didn't mean any harm, don't do that. So so I'm very much in favor of freshman orientation in which we tell students, here are some of the common faux pas, the common mistakes that people make. Be careful. Be sensitive. That'd be great. And that would reduce these clumsy acts. But if we call those clumsy acts, acts of aggression, and so this paper in 2007 by Derald Wing Su on microaggressions made the argument that it doesn't really matter what the intent is. These microaggressions can be unconscious. They can even be well-intentioned. And when we do that, when we take the normal complexities of interaction, including some unpleasantness and clumsiness, and we say these are acts of aggression, now what are we going to do? What are microaggressions. Yeah. So uh, so a microaggression is a, a, it's a, uh, anything that one does. It, it's typically verbal, but it could even be a look. Uh, it, it could be, uh, you know, excluding someone. Um, things that kind of fly under the radar. So obviously, if you use a racial slur, you tell a racist joke. I mean, that's an act of aggression. That's a macroaggression. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so there's two. So if, if microaggressions were truly small acts of aggression, um, then I would agree the term is useful. But because the um, the, the term the, is... Yeah, the language has been amped up, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Again, it doesn't matter what was intended. It's how it is received. Or if someone says, um, you know, I think, I, think the, I think the most qualified person should get the job. That could be a microaggression because you might be saying you don't believe in affirmative action. So it's not clear. Almost anything can be a microaggression if someone takes offense to it. More on the coddling of the American mind in a moment. Uh, We're speaking with Jonathan Haidt, who is the co-author of this new book. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One of the things that comes out of this being on constant alert for any kind of microaggression is this tendency to think the worst of everyone else, everyone you encounter. What do we do about this? That's right. That's, that's why I'm so concerned about this. If what we're trying to do on campus is we're all trying to create more diversity, we're all trying to create more diverse environments. Um, so if you're going to put people together from all over the world, um, you can pretty much guarantee there's going to be all kinds of misunderstandings and people who won't, you know, I mean, God, if you're raised in the United States, it's very hard to keep up with all the correct language to refer to all the different groups and issues. So if you take people from China and, you know, in South Africa and all over the world and they're coming to American universities and then you teach everyone, don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. If you feel a little bit offended by something, go with it. Well, that's just a really bad idea. We should be doing it in, in so many ways. We should be doing the opposite of what we actually do on campus. And we've been talking about campus examples, but how does that affect the business world, the political world, our national discourse? Yeah, so because what's happening on campus is intimately related to what's happening in the broader context, the problems are are fairly similar. When we started seeing this, we thought it was just confined to American universities. And a lot of people said, oh, come on, it's only at a few universities. And as soon as these, as soon as these kids get out into the real world, they're going to have to drop it. They're not going to be able to act as though, you know, somebody reading a book uh, is an attack on them. Um, and it turns out that that was wrong. It turns out that these ideas spread very, very quickly. So they've spread very quickly to the UK, to universities in the UK and, and Canada. And then, as of last year, it's been very clear that they're spreading rapidly into the business world. So my friends in journalism say the interns, the young hires, the people who are around 20, you know, 22, 23, 24, they've brought this stuff into journalism. Now, journalists and lawyers are the two professions that really, really understand the need to bring divergent views together. They really understand the need for a kind of an adversarial system. But yet the young people in both of those fields are beginning to act like, well, if we have that person say something, if we have that person, that will be legitimizing a hateful view. No, we can't. We can't even acknowledge that. And so uh, it is spreading rapidly into the business world. I have noticed a, a difference in generations yeah. in the way that news is covered on public radio, that older uh, NPR and local uh, public radio reporters tend to be more traditionally liberal in, in their outlook on the world. And younger reporters, and this is a huge generalization, mm -hmm. are more likely to... Uh, talk in the language that you discussed. Yeah. And let me just make clear, this is not about millennials. A lot of people think that college students are millennials, um, but they're not. The, um, the millennial generation is a little different from previous, as every generation is. Um, but as we know from Gene Twenge's book, iGen, uh, if you look at the mental health stats, the behavioral data, all that, the millennials um, born between 1982 and 1994 are not that different. It's really the kids born in 1995 and after. They're the ones who first got social media when they were 13, 14. They're the ones who have had much less play, outdoor play, have been much more overprotected. Again, it's not their fault. The adults did this to them. But they have been deprived of a lot of the formative experiences that it takes to become a tough, strong, independent person out in the world by him or herself. And that's why I think we really need to do something. This is not just like, oh, those young kids today, they're not like us. No, this is they're actually depressed, anxious, and they're killing themselves in much higher numbers. So, yeah, we need to 
to do something. And, okay. And, and yeah, what, what should, should we do? We do? How do we, How fix, do we it? fix it? <laughs> so this is getting ding, ding, a little ding. I thought depressing. Aren't the umbrella, aren't yeah. the, the balloons supposed to fall at this <laughs> point? <laughs> what, is, podcast, what is John will. 1? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the key concepts you talk about is something called anti-fragility. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I first learned it from this wonderful book by Nassim Taleb, who actually invented the word. So he has a book called Anti-Fragile. And in briefest format, you know, some things are fragile. If a cup is made of glass, it'll be fragile. So don't drop it. Don't let kids play with it. Um, if it's plastic, it'll be resilient. So dropping it won't break it. But dropping it won't make it better. There's no reason to drop it. But there are a few things in the world that are anti-fragile. That is, you have to drop them for them to work. And so the immune system is the classic example. If you protect your kid's immune system, use a lot of antibacterial stuff, raise them without, you know, without exposure to dirt and germs— you're crippling the immune system. It, you, you deprive it of the input that it needs to get strong. And Taleb himself says that children are the same way, and this is what the point of, of the early part of our book is. You might think you're helping your kids by protecting them from being excluded, from being uh, you know, hurt in a wrestling match, from being scared if they're out on their own. You, you might think you're protecting them. But kids need thousands of episodes of falling down, of being excluded, of being teased. They need thousands of episodes of this for their psychological immune system to develop. And beginning in the 90s, we've been depriving our kids of the experience they need. Tens of millions of kids do Friday night football. They play competitive sports. Mm -hmm. Aren't those risky pursuits that are as alive and well in America today as they always have been and teach children about risk and responsibility and independence and team play? Okay, so tell me how many hours a month those kids are spending completely independently with no adults telling them what to do and taking responsibility for conflicts. How many? None? Zero? I mean, we don't know. The problem is the ability to live as an independently functioning adult who can handle conflicts without the need for help from anyone else. And so kids who are from school to soccer practice, kids who are always under the supervision of adults, don't get a chance to practice it. So parents need to give kids more independence, more freedom. What can schools do? So let's let's really keep our focus on what kids need. What kids need is a lot of unsupervised time to interact with each other. That's the most important thing we can do for our kids. It's like imagine that we just shut off all the vitamin C to them in the 90s. No vitamin C. They desperately need vitamin C. Well, you know, vitamin C, I guess I should pick a different vitamin. Maybe vitamin P. They need playtime. They need time to work, to get into conflicts and work them out. Uh, and so um, we have to give them a lot more unsupervised time. Schools can do this. Uh, Lenore Skenazy runs a wonderful group called Let Grow. Uh, right. Go to letgrow.org. Right. Yeah, we had her on our podcast. Yeah. The yeah. simplest single idea is if schools would just open the playground an hour or two early and keep it open after school so that kids could be there. And there could be a nurse inside, but there cannot be a playground monitor. That's crucial. My daughter goes to a public school here in New York. She says, on the, she's in third grade, she says on the playground, if one girl says to another girl, I don't like your hair, and then that girl cries, the playground monitor comes over and asks what's going on. If a girl's crying, adult has to get involved. We got to stop that. So we got to give kids a lot more independence. Um, in school, we have to back off on the emphasis on academics early. What a four, five, six-year-old most needs is to play. And so stop with pushing math down into kindergarten and first grade. The research shows, you know, in Finland, they don't start until age seven, and the kids do great. There's a whole bunch of other things we can do, which we talk about in, in the book. Could so. you mention a few more? That'd be great. Oh, sure. Like encouraging uh, kids to walk to school. I mean, walking to school is one of the easiest things. they can. Obviously, not everywhere. There are places where they have to be driven. But, you know, a lot of kids used to walk to school. Very few do now. Um, because if, if a kid walks to school, the parents could be arrested. 
you could be arrested for having your kid unsupervised in a lot of places. Um, so uh, just we have to trust our kids more, give them more challenges. Something I'm really wrestling with, you know, Lenore pointed this out to me, stop helping your kids solve little problems. Like I let them cut with a knife now. Um, but I, I keep intervening. Like, no, no, here's how you hold it. Like, no, I should step back and just let them. Oh, but what if they cut their fingers? So we have to let our kids learn from trial and error a lot more. It's hard to do, but I think it's a very important part of parenting. Um, there's a lot we can talk about with devices. We don't know for sure what effect devices are having, but it looks as though heavy device use, at very least, it takes them away from other social interactions. So we need, I, th- I think it's a good idea, and we say in the book, two hours a day seems fine. These, um, are, like, these are mobile devices. Any kind of device, yeah. yeah any kind of iPads, yeah. computers, phones. Yeah. Computers may not be quite as bad. It's the interactive aspect of the touch screens is incredibly addicting. Um, so you know, time on a computer for homework is not, is not a problem, but it's sort of independent device time. Back at the university level and in our society as a whole, one thing that really struck me in the book was your idea about how we define our our group. You talk a lot about the the common enemy uh, mm-hmm. psychology of groups that, you know, let's all band together to fight this enemy. And you say one of the things we can do to transcend that is to draw a larger circle around your community. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by that? There's a Bedouin proverb, me against my brother – me and my brother against our cousin, me, my brother, and cousin against the stranger. And so humans have this amazing recursive tribal ability. We're we're very, very good at forming groups to compete with other groups. And so we have all kinds of tribal adaptations in our minds. Those tribal adaptations can be turned up or down. If you're trying to build a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, if you're trying to build a very diverse university community, you're welcoming students in from all over the world and you're and you're pleased to have people from all different groups one of the worst things you could do would be to turn up the tribal circuits what do you mean by draw a larger circle around oh yeah so that's that's a wonderful quote from paulie murray who was a civil rights activist um and uh, an episcopal minister and and a lawyer she has this wonderful line when my brothers draw a circle to exclude me i shall draw a larger circle to include them um, and even just the use of the term brothers, this is something that the best, uh, many of the most successful civil rights leaders did. Martin Luther King was always talking about my white brothers and sisters. Um, so if you do that, you draw the larger circle and you say, look, we're all humans or we're all Americans or we're all Yaleys, whatever it is. Now, some of us are being denied opportunity because of our race. What can we do about this? That's trying to elicit people's cooperation because we're all in this together. But if you start off saying, we're us, you're you, we're good, you're bad, uh, you know, you're, just, you're not going to get very far that way. That's a really great way to end. Jonathan Haidt, <laughs> author of The Coddling of the American Mind, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And now my conversation with Jim. Well, you may notice that Jim's voice quality has changed. It was recorded a week after we spoke with John. Jim is chatting with me via Skype from his home outside New York in Westchester County. Jim, this is a book in Neil deGrasse Tyson's words about the softening of America and what we can do about it. And I think that his analysis is spot on when it comes to elite college campuses. There is something going on that's wrong and that students and professors are saying, often privately, that they're walking on eggshells and afraid to speak with frankness and honesty. Right. And, you know, when we went into this, you and I both said, well, we got to make sure we're going beyond just what's happening on college campuses. 
because these are trends that can affect the country as a whole. In the end, a lot of our conversation with John Height did focus on college campuses, but I think for a good reason. Those are the hot houses where you're seeing these developing trends in their most intense form. I think some of these styles of rejecting different ideas, intolerance to different ideas, emotional reasoning, tribalism, these, I think, are infecting our discourse, even from people who will never set foot on an elite college campus. Okay, I want to say two things to that. And and I'm going to be the cranky one here, Jim. I think that the arguments would have been stronger if John Haidt and his co-author Greg Lukianoff had gone beyond elite college campuses and the way that upper middle class children are raised and looked at community and state colleges where the problem may not be nearly as pronounced. I don't think it is. And I'd also argue that the anger and bile of our political dialogue is an even greater problem than what we discussed. Donald Trump appears to be just as easily offended by criticism as any 19-year-old is upset by microaggressions. I, I think so, this, this, pollu- so this pollution did, are, of our he, national gui- dialogue is a, is a bigger crisis. Right. It's a bipartisan problem, but are you saying like, now we're having a discussion of which side started or which side is worse? No, I don't. But I don't think that we should just concentrate on the problem of the left, of it being on college campuses. This is a much broader problem. And this idea that people are, people are easily offended is, is not something that's confined to a college campus. And my argument would be that, that the argument is stronger if you take into account broader society. Right. And actually, I think this is what's really interesting is some of the most unpleasant things that are happening on the right are, you could argue, things that have been borrowed from the left. You know, the the (laughs) constant focus on, well, for example, constant focus on identity, that everything about your beliefs is due to being, you know, a cisgender white male. Then all of a sudden you get these far right, alt right wackos saying, damn straight. So I'm going to march proudly under that banner. I think that's yeah, a, I, a I'm dangerous not, I'm, trend. Well, perhaps I'm not going to blame what the bile of the right on the <laughs> left. Um, but where, where he talks about solutions, I think that he's that John Haidt is really strong when it comes to the rise of fearful parenting. And this, and I know you and I agree on this, Jim, uh, the decline of unsupervised play. Um, mm-hmm. It is a concern that that kids are not simply allowed to to play without an adult present or without there being specific rules. And that's actually to me with what I was I think really interesting about the book as a whole. This is really not a book about politics, and it's not a book about you know um, the left is wrong or the right is wrong. It's a book about styles of thinking that lead people into some unhealthy habits. And we didn't spend a maybe as much time as I would have liked on what those styles of thinking are. But, you know, one of them is catastrophizing, which I talk about all the time, this tendency to think that anything that's a little bad must be incredibly bad. This tendency towards emotional thinking where my internal feelings, if I'm feeling upset and scared, that means the plane is definitely about to crash, as opposed to being something that's my internal perception of my environment. But I think that if people can step back from trying to point fingers at which side did it first, which side is worse, and and look at what are some styles of thinking, even some that all of us indulge in that are not helping things, I think that's something that's the most important thing that comes out of this. And that is that the internalizing these highly anxiety producing ways of thinking, it's very easy to do. 
You know, their thesis is that we're teaching people to do this. And I would argue it's being taught to people who aren't going to elite colleges. Then it has these knock-on effects of driving more tribalism, more if something politically happens that you don't like, it's not just a bad thing, but a catastrophic thing. And I think then it makes people more prone to seek out really extreme answers and solutions. And that may be where you do see some of the, you know, some similarities between left and right. They're both sides, you know, on the left, everybody's saying, oh, well, we got to throw out capitalism. Let's try socialism now. On the right, you're having people, you know, saying, hey, let's just burn down the whole system and start over. And I think both extremes are possibly exacerbated by these unhealthy styles of thought. Well, you know me, Jim. I always want to end on a positive note, and I'm excited to announce that we have been given a grant by Solutions Journalism Network as part of their Renewing Democracy initiative. And we're going to be doing several shows in the fall on ways that uh, communities are getting together, talking past their partisan divides, and, and going out to several different local communities in the Midwest and South, and just seeing what they're doing and learning from them. We'll be learning more as we go along, but uh, we're, we're excited about this and, and want to be part of the solution rather than just uh, yelling about the problem. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thanks for joining us. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We are a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio for companies and nonprofits. Check out our website. It's at DaviesContent.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.